Chapter 3 Byzantines Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Jelima, King of the Vandals John of Ephesus was sent off by the emperor to baptise pagans in Asia Minor, but he found himself travelling through a death zone. In town after town, the sick and suffering staggered through the streets, their bellies swollen and eyes bloodshot, pus leaking from their mouths. Grand houses, in which entire families and their servants had died, stood silent, every room occupied by corpses. Contorted bodies lay unburied, their midriffs rotting and bursting in the heat of the day, the flesh half-eaten by hungry dogs. The roads and highways were empty, the usual thrum of trade and traffic interrupted. In desolate villages, no one was left to harvest crops and fruit trees. Animals were left unshepherded to roam the countryside as they pleased. The living went about in fear. It felt like the end of the world. On his journey, John met travellers who had tied homemade dog tags to their arms. I am such a one, son of such a one, and of such a neighbourhood, if I die for God's sake, and to show his mercy and goodness, let them know at my house, and let my people come to bury me. He heard stories of thousands, even tens of thousands, dying in the largest cities every day, their bodies stacked in heaps, until such times they could be hurled into mass graves. John kept a record of the horrors he witnessed, modelled on the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah's book of Lamentations. Death has come up into our windows, it has entered our gates and made our palaces desolate, he wrote. Now all of them have perished, since they did not remember the name of the Lord. The apocalyptic scenes John conjured in his writings formed a memoir from the front line of the first global pandemic in recorded history. A form of bubonic plague, caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis, spread by fleas which hopped between small mammals, black rats and human beings. The disease slashed its way across all three continents of the known world in the middle of the 6th century AD, ravaging sub-Saharan Africa, Persia in the Middle East, China and Central Asia, the Mediterranean coastal bowl and northwestern Europe. According to the writer Procopius of Caesarea, the sickness left neither island nor cave nor mountain ridge which had human inhabitants, and if it passed by any land, either not affecting the men there or touching them in indifferent fashion, still, at a later time, it came back. Modern archaeological studies have confirmed the presence of Y. pestis as far west as Britain, Gaul, Spain and southern Germany. Wherever it spread, symptoms included large, black, bubonic swellings of the lymph nodes in the armpits and groin, delirium, coma, vomiting of blood, and in the case of pregnant women, miscarriage. Although exact numbers will never be known, this awful disease, named the Plague of Justinian after the Eastern Emperor in whose reign it occurred, probably killed millions or even tens of millions of people, a large proportion of them between the years 541 and 543. Recently, some historians have argued that writers like John of Ephesus overhyped the spread, mortality and importance of the pandemic. Scholars have argued for greater scepticism about the overall death toll. They may have a point, 
Nevertheless, there still were many in the 6th century AD who felt they were living through an era of juddering historical importance. They were right. The plague of Justinian did not on its own transform the world, but it was a significant part of a larger story of transformation, reform, realignment, and a struggle for preeminence which took place between the 520s, where our last chapter ended, and the 620s, where our next will begin. This was a formative hundred years for the rump of the Roman Empire, for relations between the Mediterranean East and West, for the cultural balance between the Greek and Latin spheres, for regional relations between the Roman and Persian empires, for lawmaking, for great religions, for urban planners, for great artists. During an age that was buffeted not only by the first world pandemic, but also by a global climate shock, political realities and patterns of thought were set that would affect the Mediterranean world for nearly 1,000 years. To understand all this, we must focus on the birth, or rebirth, of the Eastern Roman Empire during the 6th century. This is the time when historians generally stop speaking of Rome and the Roman Empire and refer instead to Byzantium, the Greek-speaking inheritor state that served as a buffer between East and West, surviving for centuries until it was ravaged by Crusaders and later consumed by the Ottomans, an event that heralded the end of the Middle Ages. There is no better character to launch us on that journey than Justinian himself. Often described as the last true Roman, Justinian had many detractors, for he did not care whom he trampled over as he attempted to rebuild his empire in the aftermath of the barbarian conquests. The writer Procopius called him a demon in disguise who had the blood of 1,000 billion men on his hands, who cheerfully banished wealth from Roman soil and became the architect of poverty for all. Many would have agreed, yet for others, particularly those who did not have to deal with him at first hand, Justinian was a totemic emperor who deserved mention in the same breath as Augustus and Constantine. To them, he was a titan, whose terrible magnificence shone far beyond the confines of his own times, so fiercely that many centuries later, Dante Alighieri placed him in paradise as the archetypal Roman, peerless lawgiver, and a radiant, supremely gifted Caesar, who appeared in the afterlife, surrounded by a light as bright and blinding as the sun. Justinian and Theodora On the 1st of August 527, the elderly Roman Emperor Justin died from an infected ulcer on his foot and after nine years in office left the throne of Constantinople to his nephew and adopted son Justinian. The transfer of power was smooth for Justin had already appointed Justinian as his co-emperor and the younger man had begun to make his mark about the eastern provinces, sending out judicial orders, rescripts, to calm riots in unsettled cities, founding churches in Jerusalem and paying for repairs and humanitarian relief in the Syrian city of Antioch, which had been raised by a gigantic earthquake in the spring of 526. Prior to this, Justinian had served in high office as consul, sponsoring extravagant civic games to mark his tenure. 
even before his official elevation to the purple, many had supposed Justinian was the real power in the empire. After 527, he was. On becoming sole emperor, Justinian was in his mid-forties. In a famous gold-flecked mosaic above the high altar in the Basilica di San Vitale in Ravenna, Justinian is a round-faced, slightly ruddy man with heavy-lidded brown eyes, naturally pursed lips and pearls woven into strands of his hair, which is cropped above the ears. This chimes with a description by the Greek chronicler John Malalas of Antioch, who said Justinian was born at Bedariana, today in North Macedonia, and was handsome, if slightly short, with a receding hairline. He was a Latin speaker of the same Balkan peasant origin as his uncle, and he favoured the Chalcedonian form of Christianity, at a time where the empire was riven with religious schism between Chalcedonians and Miaphysites, or Monophysites, and emperors were encouraged to line up aggressively with one or other of these rival camps. Malalas thought Justinian magnanimous and Christian, but there would be plenty during his reign of nearly four decades who thought otherwise. One of the emperor's most syrupy sycophants and fiercest detractors was the chronicler Procopius of Caesarea. For many years a trusted member of the imperial administration, Procopius wrote several fulsome accounts of Justinian's achievements in war and civil administration which blended narrative history with unapologetic propaganda. But over the years, he came to loathe his master, and in a coruscating pamphlet entitled The Secret History, written in the 550s, Procopius demonstrated that there is no enemy so vicious as a former friend. He sneered that while there was a certain natural geniality in Justinian's plump cheeks, he actually resembled a famous statue of Domitian, which had been made after that notorious tyrant of the first century AD was assassinated. This comparison was intended to be politically damaging as well as just plain mean. Procopius went on to call Justinian dissembling, crafty, hypocritical, secretive by temperament, two-faced, a treacherous friend and an inexorable enemy, passionately devoted to murder and plunder, quarrelsome and above all an innovator quick to devise vile schemes and to carry them out, and with an instinctive aversion to the mere mention of anything good. It seemed, concluded Procopius, as if nature had removed every tendency to evil from the rest of mankind and deposited in the soul of this man. This was a bracing pen portrait, but it was as nothing compared to the calumnies Procopius heaped on Justinian's wife and empress, Theodora. Like Justinian, Theodora rose a long way through society to reach the imperial palace. Her father was a bear trainer in the circus and her mother an actress. Theodora spent her youth and teens as a theatre performer and, if her detractors were to be believed, far worse. Opposite her husband in the San Vitale mosaic, she appears elegant and slender, with a porcelain complexion, small mouth and dark eyes that gaze serenely from beneath an opulent jewelled headdress. Malalas characterised her as charitable and pious, but Procopius gleefully repeated rumours that Theodora had once been a child prostitute who specialised in anal sex, a sharp-tongued teenage streetwalker who cracked dirty jokes 
and sold her body to large groups of men. A burlesque dancer who trained geese to peck barley grains from her knickers. And finally, a courtesan to depraved imperial officials, in which capacity Justinian picked her up. Much of this sprang from misogyny, some of it from distaste for Theodora's adherence to the sect of Miaphysitism, and the rest from personal spite. Certainly Justinian had been obliged to change imperial law to marry Theodora on account of her lowly social origins. However, Procopius's wicked character assassination ignored the fact that throughout her life Theodora played a vital part in imperial governance, particularly by helping Justinian to juggle the theological factions that did spiritual and sometimes physical battle throughout his empire. Yet like any talented tabloid journalist today, Procopius knew that sex, slander and sneering always found a willing audience for whom truth came second to prurience. Justinian and Theodora were a couple whose achievements and celebrity were simply too delicious to ignore. Law Codes and Heretics When Justinian and Theodora came to power in the summer of 527, there were plenty of issues facing the empire. Although Constantinople had survived the barbarian crisis that had engulfed the West, resisting attacks by Huns and Goths, and although the imperial finances were still fairly robust, during the first decade of Justinian's reign, he would be forced to fight major wars on two fronts put down a domestic rebellion that threatened to topple him altogether and rebuild major parts of his capital city. However, on his accession, Justinian thought the most pressing matter facing him was legal reform. He was a passionate legislator, whose attitude to rule was summed up by a maxim from one of his legal texts. The imperial majesty should be armed with laws as well as glorified with arms that there may be good government in times both of war and of peace. In his mind, legal tidiness was intimately linked with godliness and divine sanction for his rule. So, within six months of his reign beginning, Justinian ordered the reform and recodification of the entire body of Roman law. The commission Justinian appointed to carry out this gargantuan task was assembled under the leadership of a young, energetic Greek lawyer called Trebonian. With him worked some of the most acute legal minds in Constantinople, and together they reviewed millions of lines of imperial constitutions, statements of the law made by emperors all the way back to Augustus. Just 20 months into Justinian's reign, these lawyers had digested, edited and compiled these statements into a single, definitive account of Roman law known as the Justinianic Code, Codex Justinianus. The Codex was issued on the 7th of April 529 and sent to every province in the empire, where it automatically superseded every other legal code. It was not perfect. In December AD 534, a second edition was required to clean up inconsistencies. Nor did it set in stone a single Roman law perfectly formed and unchangeable for eternity, law by its nature is constantly evolving, and Justinian, by his nature, was addicted to issuing new legal commands, which were collected by scholars as the novels, novellae constitutiones. But the code was a phenomenal achievement nonetheless. 
It ran to 12 books covering civil, ecclesiastical, criminal and public law. It was an exercise in clarification and bureaucratic streamlining that set a gold standard for constitutional reform in the Middle Ages. Finding the laws obscure because they had become far more numerous than they should be, and in obvious confusion because they disagreed with each other, he preserved them by cleansing them of the mass of their verbal trickery, wrote Procopius. From a chronicler whose stock in trade was verbal trickery, this was high praise indeed. The Code was, however, just one of the legal reforms of Justinian's early reign. The year after it was issued, Trebonian was given another mammoth task. Having dealt with the minutiae of specific Roman laws, he now empanelled experts to make sense of jurisprudence, as it was contained in the collective writings of the great classical jurists. Most of the great jurists of the imperial era, men such as Gaius, Papinian, Ulpian and Paulus, had lived and written during pre-Christian times, so their pronouncements were not only frequently contradictory, they also flirted with irreligion. As they were pagans, their opinions were naturally devoid of Christian sentiment, and impieties did not please Justinian. So Trebonian was tasked with creating a single statement of Roman jurisprudence, in which the great works of the ancients were rationalised and improved by references to Almighty God. This project appeared in two stages, the so-called 50 questions, quinquaginta decisiones, then the digest, or pandects, of December 533. And here again, Trebonian came good, providing the emperor with an elegant solution to a bureaucratic mess. For generations, Romans had complained of the archaic complexity, slowness and corruption of the law. Now, it had all been whipped into shape. The last of Justinian's legal reforms, which followed directly after the publication of the Digest, was the creation of the Institutes, Institutiones Justiniani, which was effectively an index to the Digest, designed for the use of trainee lawyers in the official imperial law schools at Beirut and Constantinople. This text served as a practical primer to the new law and made sure budding young lawyers would be taught to think exactly as Justinian wished. One of Justinian's constitutions stated that our subjects are our constant care, whether they are alive or dead. It was the preamble to a law regulating funerals, but the words could easily be read as a general statement of the emperor's ambition, to leave his mark on every aspect of Roman life, past, present and future, and to do so by the word as well as the sword. Of course, the reforms to Roman law that occurred during the 6th century did not take place in a vacuum. In the barbarian kingdoms of the West, the realms of the Franks, Burgundians and Visigoths, other rulers were busy commissioning their own law codes. But theirs were small beer indeed compared to the successful and lasting overhaul of the entire Roman system. In Constantinople and the Eastern Empire, Justinian's legal reforms marked the start of a new era in lawmaking and a particularly Greek era in legal history. And in the West, Roman law, as laid down in the age of Justinian, would come to have foundational status. In the 12th century, it was esteemed to the point of fetishism 
in the medieval universities that sprang up in Bologna, Paris, Oxford and elsewhere. As late as the 19th century, the Napoleonic Code, Code Napoleon, the great French civil law reform of 1804, was modelled explicitly on Justinian's example. Indeed, it is possible to argue that any nation in the world today which has a codified law, as opposed to, say, the common law that dominates the legal system in the United Kingdom, owes a debt to Justinian and Trebonian. Even if this was not the original intention, it was an incredible accomplishment. In little more than five years of intensive administrative activity, Justinian had rewoven the legal fabric of the empire and refashioned legal thought in ways that would still be palpable 15 centuries later. And he was just getting started. While Trebonian oversaw Justinian's programme of legal reforms, the new emperor was also turning his mind to the intertwined issues of heresy, unorthodoxy, disbelief and sexual malpractice. Here too, there was much to do. One of his toughest tasks was trying to negotiate a path through the difficult issue of schism and heresy within the imperial church. By the time of his accession, wranglings between Arian and Nicene Christians, which had tormented the Western Empire during the barbarian invasions of the 5th century, had been complicated by another dispute between Chalcedonians and Miaphysites, who disagreed over the exact nature of Christ and the balance between his human and divine qualities. Today, the issues at stake between these two groups can seem arcane to all but specialist church historians, but in the 6th century, they were enough to cause popular riots and international diplomatic crises. Bishops had been murdered by mobs for professing views at odds with their congregations. A formal schism between the churches of Rome and Constantinople had endured between 484 and 518 over the matter. And while the imperial capital was staunchly Chalcedonian, large areas outside it were just as steadfastly Miaphysite. These included Egypt, the breadbasket of the empire itself. The prospect of losing the province over a matter of faith was not an enticing one, but it was real. In light of this, Justinian was forced to walk a tightrope between Chalcedonians and Miaphysites for his entire reign. He was helped somewhat by the fact that his wife Theodora was herself strongly Miaphysite and went out of her way to shelter members of the sect, thereby giving the impression of imperial even-handedness. But Justinian never really grasped the problem with the firmness that he had shown in reforming Roman law. The best that could be said was that he avoided escalating the dispute into another official schism in the Christian world. Elsewhere, however, Justinian's suppressing instinct and pursuit of orthodoxy would be felt rather more deeply. He was an especially keen persecutor of sexual deviance. Moral turpitude bothered Justinian's neat mind, and there seemed to be plenty of it to worry about. The emperor's special bugbears included sodomy and paedophilia, and he did not hesitate to punish their practitioners. John Malalas recorded details of one ferocious campaign to drive up standards among the Roman clergy. In AD 528, he wrote, some of the bishops from various provinces were accused of homosexual practices. Among them was Isaiah, bishop of Rhodes, 
and likewise a Thracian bishop named Alexander. These two clerics and others were brought to Constantinople for questioning by the city prefect. Sadly, they did not have good excuses, so the prefect tortured Isaiah severely and exiled him, and he amputated Alexander's genitals and paraded him around on a litter. Other suspects had sharp straws inserted into their penises and were publicly humiliated in the forum. This was not merely cruel Roman sport, but imperial policy. Justinian subsequently decreed that everywhere homosexuals and those detected in pederasty should be gelded. Many died in agony. From then on there was a fear among those afflicted with homosexual lust, wrote Malalus. It was a cruel demonstration of a prejudice that would endure throughout the Middle Ages. Finally, alongside sexual deviancy was the troubling matter of spiritual degeneracy and specifically the fact that, in an empire that was ostentatiously Christian, doctrinal disputes notwithstanding, there remained some stubborn outposts of old-fashioned paganism. It was by now a long time since Constantine's Edict of Milan of 313 had preached religious tolerance, and love for the old gods was becoming ever harder to square with life as a Roman. No emperor had embraced paganism since Julian, who had died in 363. Olympic Games had been banned since the time of Theodosius II in the 390s. Non-Christians were banned from serving in the army or the imperial administration. As we have seen, part of Trebonian's goal in revising the law was to apply an explicitly Christian flavour to the pagan jurists' writings collected in the Digest. This was not mere window dressing. The time was fast approaching where pagan beliefs would not only be marginal, but illegal. Among the rash of laws passed in the first decade of Justinian's reign was a decree that pagans were not allowed to teach students. In itself, this did not stand out from the other collections of anti-pagan legislation collected in Justinian's law codes, but its effect on one important institution was soon made clear. John Malalas spelled out what it meant. In an entry covering the year 529, he wrote, The emperor issued a decree and sent it to Athens, ordering that no one should teach philosophy nor interpret the laws. Another chronicler, Agathius, reported that the last headmaster of the Athens school was forced to leave not only the school in the city, but the empire itself. In 531, he and several of his fellow teachers fled to Persia. And this was more than mere relocation. In effect, Justinian's diktat had spelled the end for the famous school in the ancient Greek capital, the city of Plato and Aristotle, where students had absorbed the insights of classical philosophy and natural science for generations. The closure of the Athens school was important it did not kill at a stroke all non-Christian learning in the Eastern Empire, nor did it immediately throw up an intellectual wall between the classical age and the dawning era of Christian hegemony in Europe and the West. But it was both significant and symbolic. For while scholarship in Persia and other Eastern parts flourished, with libraries in Baghdad and other Middle Eastern capitals preserving and transmitting copies of the works of Aristotle and other non-Christian greats. Justinian's reign, and the 6th century in general, 
was marked by a self-blinkering in the Christian world. Doctrinal minutiae assumed ever bigger and bloodier importance, while anything non-Christian was regarded with gathering suspicion. The Roman Empire had once been a superspreader of classical learning across its vast territories, but as it fell to pieces in the West and became ever more doctrinally obsessed in the East, it became an active blocker to knowledge chains across the ages, and the transmission of ancient learning throughout the empire began to fail. One reason that the label the Dark Ages has proven so hard to untie from the neck of the Middle Ages is that for hundreds of years, between the 6th century and the first beginnings of the Renaissance in the late 13th, the scientific and rational insights of the ancient world were forgotten or suppressed in the West. This was not simply an unfortunate symptom of creeping cultural dementia. It sprang from the deliberate policies of Eastern emperors like Justinian, who made it their business to hound out of their world the self-appointed but unfortunately unchristian guardians of priceless knowledge. Rioting and Renewal Given the scale of reform in the empire and the pace with which Justinian pursued change during the first years of his reign, it is perhaps not surprising that there was a serious outbreak of popular rebellion against his rule within five years of his accession. This took place in the first wintry days of AD 532, on the streets of Constantinople. And although the causes of it were peculiar to the politics of the city, its material consequences were very long-lasting and can still be seen in Istanbul today. Before we move on from the first period of Justinian's epoch-shaping reign in Byzantium, we must therefore look at the so-called Nika riots, an eruption of violence which took Byzantium to the brink of anarchy. By the start of the 6th century, one of the most keenly attended forms of public entertainment in Constantinople and other large cities of the Eastern Empire was chariot racing. In the capital, races took place in the Hippodrome, a huge U-shaped racetrack in a stadium complex that backed on to the Imperial Great Palace. Here, four massive bronze horse statues stood on top of one of the spectator stands, indicating the entertainment that took place below, in which equestrian teams thundered around the track at literally breakneck speeds. The races were exciting, dangerous contests, which made stars of the fastest and most skilful charioteers and frothing partisans of the fans. Over time, the most ardent racing supporters had come to organise themselves into factions, and in Constantinople there were four, the Greens, Blues, Reds and Whites. By far the largest and most powerful were the Greens and Blues, whose rabid members sat in blocks in the Hippodrome and took team positions on religious and political matters, expecting their collective voices to carry weight among the imperial administration. The Hippodrome factions shared with modern European football ultras a pompous self-regard, a taste for violence, and a collective fixation on clothes and haircuts. Very thin-skinned, they could easily be stirred to violence when they felt they had been slighted or ignored. As a young man rising through his uncle's palace service, Justinian had been a prominent supporter of the Blues. 
but by the time he was crowned emperor, he was trying to shift his position, treating all the factions with disdain. Both approaches were problematic. Emperors who overindulged one faction fueled ill feeling between the rival groups, but those who withheld their support entirely often pushed the factions into each other's arms. This was what Justinian achieved in the winter of AD 531-2. It nearly cost him his throne. Trouble flared in January, when Constantinople's city prefect botched the hangings of a group of green and blue supporters who had rioted following a race and caused a number of deaths. One green and one blue had been found guilty of homicide and sentenced to death, but cheated justice when the gallows snapped during their execution. The men escaped and briefly took sanctuary in a nearby church, but before long were back under royal guard, imprisoned at the house of the city prefect, known as the Praetorium. In other circumstances, this might have been mere execution day drama, but it morphed into a full-blown collapse of public order. According to John Malalas, the prisoners were kept under guard by the city authorities for three days. All the while, the Greens and Blues agitated for their release and pardon. On Tuesday the 13th of January, Justinian appeared in the imperial box at the Hippodrome for a series of races. Throughout the day, blue and green supporters chanted together, asking the emperor to show mercy. Justinian, as usual, a stickler for law and order, paid no attention. And so, on the basis that the only thing worse than being denied is being ignored, as the races drew to a close, the factionistas turned on Justinian himself. The devil prompted evil counsels in them, and they chanted to one another, Long live the merciful blues and greens, wrote Malalas. Then they poured out into the streets around the Hippodrome, yelling the Greek word nika, conquer, a popular chant during chariot racing, and setting fire to buildings. As night drew in, flames licked the praetorium. The two prisoners were freed and disappeared into the crowd, never to be heard from again. The Nika rioters had now achieved their objective. But by now, many other, more general complaints had been added to their original grievances. Most were the perennial grousings of urban populations throughout history, high taxes, corruption, and religious sectarianism. According to Procopius, they had a particular dislike for John of Cappadocia, a city prefect who spent his days swindling and his lunch hours feasting until he threw up. But if the rioters were not original, they were certainly dangerous, and their blood was up. For Justinian, the Nica riots could not have come at a worse time. Besides his massive reforms to the law and campaigns against pagans and heretics, he was also in the midst of highly sensitive negotiations with a new Persian king of kings, Khosro I, for an end to a bloody war that had erupted between the two empires in their Middle Eastern borderlands. Foreign policy was thus at a critical juncture, and it was not a convenient moment for Rome's capital city to be set ablaze by ordinary people, chafing at his heavy-handed rule. Yet that was what was happening. On the morning of Wednesday the 14th of January, Justinian announced another day of chariot races, hoping to distract the rioters back to good behaviour. But all this did was breathe further life into the disruptions. Rather than settling down to enjoy the games, 
the rioters set fire to the Hippodrome and began to shout for the dismissal of various imperial officials, including the Master of Laws, Trebonian. Justinian reluctantly agreed, but it did no good. By now the riot had taken on a life of its own, and the only route out was a messy one. During the next five days, Justinian lost control of his capital city. On Wednesday, he lurched from acquiescence to vengeance, sending in the rising star of his army, a tough-minded general named Belisarius, who had been prominent in the recent Persian campaigns, to crack skulls with a band of goth mercenaries at his back. There was fighting, and many of the faction members were cut down, wrote John Malalas. But the mob was incensed and started fires in other places and began killing indiscriminately. For 72 hours, flames engulfed a large part of central Constantinople. Two nephews of a former emperor, Hypatius and Pompeius, were separately proclaimed as Justinian's replacement. Despite a surge of troops from Thrace, who arrived in the capital to reinforce Belisarius, by nightfall on Saturday, the 17th of January, the city was still in uproar. Matters came to a head the following day. Not long after dawn, Justinian appeared at the charred Hippodrome, holding the Gospels. When he was jeered back inside the palace, he considered fleeing the city with a fleet of ships. According to Procopius, Theodora came to the rescue. She scolded him, arguing that, for one who had been an emperor, it is unendurable to be a fugitive and added that she would not wish to live that day on which those who meet me shall not address me as mistress. Justinian listened, and he realised there was effectively one option left. Only extreme action would now bring his people to heel. Thousands of rioters were assembled inside the Hippodrome, where they were cheering Hypatius's name. The field was set for battle. Belisarius was ready to lead the charge. When imperial troops rushed the Hippodrome that Sunday, they found tens of thousands of protesters penned in. The troops had orders to massacre them, and it was easy. Soldiers funnelled in from two sides of the stadium, some with arrows, others with swords. According to Procopius, 2,000 prisoners were taken and 30,000 civilians killed. If these numbers were true, then around 7% of Constantinople's population was slain in a single day. And even if it was an exaggeration, this was still a phenomenally bloody occasion and a terrible warning of the power of the emperor and his capacity for cruelty. The rioters' candidate, Hypatius, was captured and killed the next day and his body hurled into the sea. For nearly a week afterwards, Constantinople was placed in lockdown, with all shops except essential food outlets closed. Meanwhile, Justinian, saved from ignominy, sent word out to the nearby cities of the empire, announcing his victory and promising to rebuild Constantinople on an even grander scale than before. He had not won any friends, but he had survived. To distract from the horrifying violence of the Nika riots, Justinian did what many other autocrats throughout history have also done. He decided to build his way back towards glory. Among the most distressing architectural casualties of the Nika riots was the city's great church, dedicated to Hagia Sophia, 
Holy Wisdom, a vital landmark in the imperial and civic centre of Constantinople that was arranged around the avenue known as the Meze, Middle Street. This area, which included the Hippodrome, was the worst affected by the rioters' arson, and Justinian decided rebuilding it was of paramount importance. The basilica had been a fine, large, wooden-roofed building with an oblong footprint of about 5,000 square metres. But now the wooden roof was destroyed completely, and according to Procopius, the whole church lay a charred mass of ruins. Yet in the ashes lay a great opportunity. The emperor, wrote Procopius, disregarding all questions of expense, eagerly pressed on to begin the work of construction and began to gather all the artisans from the whole world. He planned to build the greatest church on earth. The men Justinian hired to lead this project were among the finest minds on the planet. One was Isidore of Miletus, a professor of geometry and mechanics, who had worked on editions of Archimedes' texts, was quoted as an authority alongside ancient geniuses like Euclid, and had invented a special compass for drawing parabolas. The other was Anthemius of Tralles, who was an expert on lenses, prisms, and mechanical tools, as well as one of a brood of amazing siblings who included a professor of literature, a famous lawyer, and a great physicist. Together, Isidore and Anthemius have been compared by modern historians to Christopher Wren and Leonardo da Vinci. Whether that is fair or not, their engagement on the new Hagia Sophia was certainly a masterstroke. Procopius wrote that one might with good reason marvel at the discernment of the emperor himself, in that out of the whole world he was able to select the men who were most suitable for the most important of his enterprises. The Hagia Sophia, which Isidore and Anthemius produced in five years between 532 and 537, stands comparison with the most magnificent buildings ever constructed. The new church soared above the Constantinopolitan skyline. It occupied roughly the same area as the original basilica, but whereas that one was long and narrow, its replacement was built on a central plan, closer to a square shape, topped with a stunning, almost unfathomably vast dome, bigger even than that on the Pantheon in Rome. Procopius thought the great dome of the Hagia Sophia so graceful that it seemed to be suspended from heaven, and its beauty was magnified by its relationship with other, smaller domes which interlocked with it and created a wonderful array of interior shapes, all bathed in natural light, which entered through carefully positioned openings. All these details, fitted together with incredible skill in mid-air and floating off from each other and resting only on the parts next to them, produce a single and most extraordinary harmony in the work, and yet do not permit the spectator to linger much over the study of any one of them, but each detail attracts the eye and draws it on irresistibly to itself he wrote. Although Procopius's writings on architecture were heavily laced with flattery for Justinian, for unlike his excoriating tell-all, the secret history, this was official propaganda, in this case the hyperbole was justified. Inside the church, natural patterns in the white Proconsian marble cut in the quarries of Marmara Island 
vied for attention with swathes of mosaic decoration. The interior of the dome was densely covered in gold mosaic, glass tesserae threaded with beaten gold leaf, which gave the impression of the entire surface having been lacquered in precious metal. Who could recount the beauty of the columns and the stones with which the church is adorned? One might imagine that he had come upon a meadow with its flowers in full bloom, wrote Procopius. Whenever anyone enters this church to pray, his mind is lifted up toward God and exalted, feeling that he cannot be far away. Of course, transcendence did not come cheap. The inner sanctuary of the Hagia Sophia alone was endowed with £40,000 worth of silver ornaments and artworks. But the effect was sensational. The Hagia Sophia was the centrepiece of a singular campaign of urban renewal, driven through with the same energy and speed that had characterised the emperor's changes to Roman law. And the renovation of Constantinople was in turn only one part of an empire-wide monumental building programme which included marvels such as four giant pillars at Ephesus, topped with statues of the evangelists, and a city founded in what is now Serbia to commemorate the place of the emperor's birth, and provide a palatial home for a new archbishopric of Justiniana Prima. The wonder of these works sang down through the ages. Some four centuries after the Hagia Sophia was completed, during which time the dome had been damaged by an earthquake and rebuilt at even more magnificent height. A pair of diplomats from Kiev visited Constantinople on business. They were granted a tour of the church, which now homed a splendid collection of the world's best Christian relics. And they could hardly believe their eyes. The ambassadors wrote home in astonishment, praising the Greeks as far superior in religion to the Bulgars or Germans. In the Hagia Sophia, they said, we knew not whether we were in heaven or earth. We cannot forget that beauty.